You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Y'all you know I mean? Dig into the real history of this country. And the fact that it was built on blood. But for now, I'm just blessing y'all with this one. A continuation of the first. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. And that was an excerpt from the song Writings on Disobedience by Vinny Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is the evolution of the Bernie 2016, Bernie 2020, and Howie 2020 podcasts in our ongoing journey through the social and political landscape of media and the world. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out more, including all the back episodes of this and the earlier podcasts at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find some links there. There's a link to send me a message. There's also some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a story published at povertymeasurement.org. Real-time estimates of poverty show poverty rose after government benefits expired. The coronavirus pandemic has taken a significant toll on the U.S. labor market. Since the start of the pandemic, more than 75 million claims for unemployment insurance have been filed. Improvements in the labor market have slowed with more than 12 million officially unemployed and millions of other former workers still without jobs. Early on in the pandemic, the federal government offered a relief package that included large one-time stimulus payments to households and greatly expanded unemployment insurance benefits. But some of these benefits have expired while unemployment persists, raising important questions about the long-term impact of the pandemic on poverty. And side note, this uh, piece does um, describe those one-time stimulus payments as large. However, those in relation to what other countries are doing, uh, the U.S. payments are not large. And especially the factor that it was a one-time payment, um, it is abysmal for the wealthiest country on earth, the lack of support for individuals. But that early support was very helpful, and that's what this paper is about. Fortunately, James Sullivan, the Gilbert F. Schaefer College Professor of Economics and co-founder of the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities, LEO, at the University of Notre Dame, Bruce Meyer, the McCormick Foundation professor at the University of Chicago, Harris School of Public Policy, and Jihoon Han, an economist at Zhejiang University, have constructed a new poverty measure that provides near-real-time poverty estimates using U.S. Census Bureau data. They are updating this measure on a monthly basis as new data become available. Their analysis shows the poverty declined in the first few months after the start of the pandemic. 
They find that poverty rate fell by 1.5 percentage points from 10.9% in the months leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic to 9.4% in the three months at the start of the pandemic. The team also found evidence that poverty declined across a range of demographic groups and geographies, with some of the most noticeable declines evident for people with low levels of education and for those who fall into the other race, neither white nor black, category. Poverty has risen, however, in recent months, as some of the benefits that were part of the government relief package have expired. Poverty rose 1.4 percentage points from 9.4% in the period from April to June to 10.8% for August and September, erasing the decline in poverty that occurred early on in the pandemic. The increase in poverty in recent months was more noticeable for blacks, children, and those with a high school education or less. The estimates also suggest that poverty rose more in states with less effective unemployment insurance systems. The recent overall rise raises concerns about possible future increases in poverty, given that pandemic unemployment compensation. The additional $600 paid weekly to unemployment insurance recipients was discontinued at the end of July, and Congress has not passed another relief package. The initial research will be published in the Brookings Papers on Economic Activity and is available via the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, while The Economist monthly updates are currently available via the team's Poverty Measurement Dashboard. The researchers' estimates, which can be produced with a lag of only a few weeks, help clarify how the pandemic affects individuals and families throughout 2020 as it happens. As a result, the estimates could be the basis for government policies and programs that help prevent people from slipping into poverty during sharp downturns in the economy. Quote, in this time of crisis, it is important for policymakers to respond as quickly as possible to address the needs of those hit hardest by the pandemic, the author said. Our results show that for low-income individuals and families, the government response to the pandemic more than offset the sharp decline in earnings early on in the pandemic. However, these gains appear to have faded as some of the benefits expire. It is important that we continue to track poverty in real time to determine what additional support is called for as this pandemic persists. Interestingly, the data indicate that the vast majority of the unemployed received unemployment insurance, though this was less true early on in the pandemic. Receipt of the benefits was uneven across the states, however, with some not reaching a large share of their out-of-work residents. The rise in poverty was particularly evident in these states in September. The author's initial study, using the data through June, goes on to show that the entire decline in poverty can be accounted for by the one-time stimulus checks the federal government issued, predominantly in April and May, and the expansion of unemployment insurance eligibility and benefits. In fact, in absence of these programs, poverty would have risen sharply. The one-time payments provided to up to $1,200 to individuals and $2,400 to married couples without dependents, with the maximum amount going to individuals with income under $75,000 and married couples with income under $150,000. 
In addition, unemployment insurance benefits were increased by $600 per week, and eligibility for unemployment insurance was broadened to include the self-employed, those seeking part-time employment, and others who otherwise would not be eligible. Next up, we take a look at a piece of the new stimulus package that's being debated or worked out or ironed out. I'm not even sure it's being debated so much as it's being worked on behind closed doors. The Congress has not passed a stimulus since that original stimu- stimulus in the spring. And while the House of Representatives passed a uh, important and, and significant stimulus bill, the Senate never took it up for discussion. One of the more contentious issues in the ongoing uh, discussion and debate is the um, immunity for businesses and corporations. This piece was written by David Sirota and Julia Rock. is published at dailyposter.com. In early October, Harvard researchers sounded an alarm. They released a report showing a pattern of coronavirus deaths surging soon after workers filed requests for workplace safety assistance from the U.S. Labor Department. The takeaway was clear. Workers are desperately begging the government to help protect them from a deadly pandemic. The government has been unresponsive, and lots of workers have subsequently died preventable deaths. Today, a little more than a month after the study came out, the federal government is finally responding. A bipartisan group of Senate and House lawmakers have announced legislation to shield corporations from lawsuits when their lax safety standards kill more workers. In practice, the legislation, which has been tucked into a larger COVID relief package, is a holiday season gift for corporate donors. It would strip frontline workers of their last remaining legal tool to protect themselves in the workplace. At the same time, the unemployment system is designed to financially punish those workers if they refuse to return to unsafe workplaces during the pandemic. The legislation comes not only as workers continue to die, but also as roughly 7-9% to of the total COVID death count are, quote, take-home infections traced to employees unwittingly spreading the disease to their families and friends. At the behest of corporate lobbyists, the Liability Shield initiative has spread like a virus in America's political system. As the Daily Poster first reported, it coursed through the state legislatures across the country after New York Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo responded to a COVID massacre in nursing homes by shielding nursing home executives from lawsuits after a healthcare lobby group funneled $1 million into his political machine. Yes, the Andrew Cuomo, the one who uh, has been lauded in the press and elsewhere about his exceptional response to COVID. Senate Republicans in Washington then copied Como's liability shield legislation and pasted it, word for word, into their last COVID stimulus proposal in July. Unable to pass that federal liability shield legislation on its own, lawmakers from both parties have now come together in a grand show of post-election bipartisan unity 
to help their corporate donors create a hostage situation that's something out of a dystopian sci-fi movie. Their proposal predicates long overdue and desperately needed unemployment assistance on the condition that corporations are given a get-out-of-jail-free card when their profit-maximizing business practices extinguish the lives of employees. And this is obviously nothing new. Here I'm diverging from the story. This is standard practice. All, all ex, quote-unquote externalities, all costs related to doing business that are not profit-making are externalized. Their, their legislation is put up to make them uh, unaccountable, to make those companies unaccountable to those things. This is why fracking companies and their both their uh, formulas used in their fracking fluids and the, the discharged wastewater from their fracked sites are not subject to Clean Water Act regulations. And the list goes on and on and on about companies um, being excused from the real costs of the businesses that they manage. Back to the piece. Support from Democratic lawmakers for the Liability Shield legislation comes after the same health care lobby group that drafted New York's law has poured more than $11 million into House and Senate Democratic super PACs. The party, though, doesn't seem to want its own voters to know the details of the deal it is cutting with the GOP. In a comically on-the-nose attempt at a bait-and-switch, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who's Democrat in name only, touted the legislation as only financial aid for communities, leaving out the fact that it includes a liability shield for corporations. U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been one of the few Democratic lawmakers to spotlight what's really going on. Last week, she tweeted, quote, if you want to know why COVID relief is tied up in Congress, one key reason is that Republicans are demanding legal immunity for corporations so they can expose their workers to COVID without repercussions. The bipartisan initiative aims to obscure its Dr. Evil level of depravity by superficially depicting the liability shield as merely temporary. But that seems like a ruse, as indicated by private equity mobile and Senate and Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah, who said the federal COVID liability shield provision, quote, provides a temporary suspension of any liability-related lawsuits, state or federal level associated with COVID-19, giving states enough time to put in place their own protections. Though full legislative language has not been released, the goal seems clear, to give state legislatures more time to permanently prevent workers from suing employers who endanger them and to permanently block their families from mounting such lawsuits when workers die. Notably, lawmakers announcing the proposal did not point to a spate of frivolous wrongful death lawsuits that corporations have been warning about as rationale for the liability shield. Instead, as the watchdog group Taxpayers for Common Sense recently noted, quote, of more than 4,100 COVID-19-related lawsuits filed. Only 75 are for wrongful death or injury as a result of getting sick at work. 
two-thirds fall into three categories, insurance disputes, prison cases, and civil rights cases, including challenging shelter-in-place orders. The Liability Shield legislation is not some standalone cause. It should be understood as the culmination of a much larger, long-term campaign to remove countervailing force and give capital supreme power over labor. Over the last few decades, the government, through legislation and court rulings, has weakened unions, which have used collective bargaining to protect workers' rights, limited class-action lawsuits and punitive damages, which are designed to punish corporate misbehavior, and gutted the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is supposed to enforce the weak workplace safety laws still on the books. Now come liability shields, laundered as necessary COVID solve, but which are really designed to permanently remove the last remaining deterrent to corporate abuse. Large employers already knew that hobbled OSHA would, at most, give them the equivalent of a parking ticket for killing workers. Indeed, the agency has refused to even issue formal safety standards during the outbreak, a posture designed to make it harder to hold corporations accountable for any unsafe practices at all. The situation is now so unregulated and so bleak that in one situation, corporate managers were allegedly betting on the number of COVID deaths that would happen at a meatpacking plant. With liability shields, those same employers will know that they can get away with all kinds of cost slashing and corner cutting that endangers workers and denies them access to basic protective gear. In other words, corporations will know they can drive the COVID body count ever higher and they won't even have to worry about being called into a courtroom to answer for their crimes. And from um, immunity for COVID-related deaths to uh, death by drone and U.S. government action directly, this piece is by Tom Dunn, is published at boingboing.net. A recent hearing in the case of award-winning American journalist Bilal Abdul Karim versus the United States government, took a very dark turn towards the unlimited privilege of extra-legal killings of U.S. citizens. And this is some, some Orwellian speak for murder. Extra-legal killings. Um, Kareem claims that he has narrowly avoided at least five drone strikes while reporting in the Middle East and believes that he has been placed on a government kill list because of his interviews with al-Qaeda-linked militants. Kareem is legally challenging his inclusion on said list based on the fact that he's a U.S. citizen and a journalist. From Common Dreams, quote, A lower court initially upheld Kareem's right to bring the case. However, it dismissed it after the government claimed the proceedings would require disclosure of state secrets. Now on appeal, the central question before the court is whether the government can secretly authorize the assassination of American citizens without judicial review. During a court hearing on Monday, November 16, Justice Department Attorney Bradley Hinshelwood essentially argued that the government has full power to kill its own citizens without judicial oversight, particularly when state secrets are involved. 
Quote, in all of these circumstances, Kareem is not even the only person present, much less is there anything to suggest that he's actually the target of any of these specific attacks, he said. U.S. Circuit Judge Patricia Millett paraphrased the Department of Justice's argument as empowering the government to, quote, unilaterally decide to kill U.S. citizens, according to Courthouse News. While there's no publicly available transcript of the hearing as far as I can find, the World Socialist website summed up the exchange as such, quote, During the hearing, Attorney Bradley Hinchelwood declared that the government had the power to target and kill alleged national security threats, including U.S. citizens, and that planning or committing such acts was not reviewable by the courts. Kareem's lawyer explained in The Independent, quote, Today the Trump administration claimed that Americans can be stripped of due process rights, not to vote, but to life. The government's argument? The reasons the U.S. wants to assassinate Bilal, an American journalist who has been reporting from Syria, are so secret that they can't possibly be aired in a courtroom. When pressed by the court, the government asserted that it has the absolute right to order the assassination of an American citizen anytime, anywhere, including within the United States, and then claimed that it is a state secret and that its actions are unreviewable by any court. Some of the judges indicated shock that such a wide power could be claimed, a claim never before made. As long as the government contends the evidence is too secret to share, then the Americans caught in the crosshairs are out of luck. And the rest of us just have to trust the president's judgment with, the no, with no role whatever for the courts. And as for the unlucky target, he can only try to duck. Again, I can't find a transcript of the actual court session. Hinshelwood's argument may have been more long-winded and less concise than, quote, the government can unilaterally decide to kill U.S. citizens. And certainly Kareem's lawyers would have a motive to mischaracterize their legal opponents. But it's not particularly surprising that the U.S. government, under any administration, would ultimately push for that conclusion in order to defend its unilateral drone-striking authority at any cost. And that cost, of course, is the lives, the lives of innocents, as well as the lives of targets of those drone strikes. Um, that, that is the cost of the strikes overall, and it's the cost of keeping all of the details around the why of those strikes away from the public. Next up, a piece published at alternate.org, written by Matthew Chapman. GOP planted a time bomb in their 2017 tax cut bill that will actually raise most people's taxes. On Saturday, writing for the New York Times, Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz warned that many people's taxes are about to go up. But it's not because Joe Biden's campaign plan raises taxes, as President Donald Trump has repeatedly and falsely claimed. It is because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the controversial tax cut bill passed by Republicans on a party-line vote in 2017, has a provision that will start slowly raising taxes next year. 
And ultimately, Stiglitz warned, many low- and middle-income people will actually pay more than they did before the bill passed in the first place. Quote, President Trump and his congressional allies hoodwinked us, wrote Stiglitz. The law they passed initially lowered taxes for most Americans, but it built in automatic stepped tax increases every two years that begin in 2021, and that by 2027 would affect nearly everyone but people at the top of the economic hierarchy. All taxpayer income groups with incomes of $75,000 and under, that's about 65% of taxpayers, will face a higher tax rate in 2027 than in 2019. For most, in fact, it's a delayed tax increase dressed up as a tax cut, wrote Stiglitz. How many times have you heard Trump and his allies mention that? They surmised, correctly so far, that if they waited to add the tax increases until after the 2020 election, few of the people most affected were likely to remember who was responsible. Starting next year, quote, The Congressional Budget Office and Joint Committee estimated that those with an income of $20,000 to $30,000 would owe an extra $365 next year. These are people who are struggling just to pay rent and put food on the table, wrote Steiglitz. By 2027, when the law's provisions are set to be fully enacted, with the stealth tax increases complete, the country will be neatly divided into two groups. Those making over $100,000 will on average get a tax cut. Those earning under $100,000, an income bracket encompassing three-quarters of taxpayers, will not. And side note, the other major component of that bill was to lower the corporate tax rate from somewhere around 35%. Guess what's happening to those taxes starting next year? Or those tax rates? Absolutely nothing. They're staying there. This bill locked in that change for corporations and businesses, but made the change for uh, individual taxpayers only temporary with a not even just a temporary decline, but a planned future increase that Steiglitz just covered. Back to the piece. Making matters worse, Steiglitz wrote, the job creation Republicans promised from the tax bill didn't happen. Most of the savings went into stock buybacks that enhanced executive pay. This was a massive, massive ripoff of the tax base, the tax dollars from the individual to the corporations. It's a continuation of the same massive ripoff of the, from the individual to the corporations that have happened over decades and decades and decades, since the times when the corporations used to pay a, a large percentage of the total tax base till now, where they pay a tiny, tiny percentage of the total tax base. By contrast, Steiglitz wrote, Biden's plan would reverse much of that damage. Mark Zandi and Bernard Yaros of Moody's Analytics have done the most credible and thorough analysis comparing the Biden and Trump plans, including Mr. Trump's stealth increases and the other promised tax and expenditure changes. 
Mr. Biden's plan wins by an enormous margin, 7.4 million more jobs and a much quicker recovery from the recession. That means higher wages and incomes for most Americans. Quote, elections gave Republicans the power to enact these tax shenanigans. Neither conscience nor principles stopped them, wrote Steiglitz, because too many of them have neither conscience nor principles. Well, they might have principles, but their principles are protecting themselves, protecting their wealthy donors. And unless Biden and the Democratic Senate are elected to stop it, he warned, the increases unfairly aimed at the vast majority of Americans who are disproportionately suffering in the pandemic will cause even more hardship. And you know who's not having any hardship from the tax laws is Amazon. One of the first times I talked to Judy Berry on the phone, and I had never met her, I said, Judy, you know, the earth is not dying. It's being killed. And the people who are killing it have names and addresses. What I mean by that is through power structure research, through hunting very carefully, we can find out the names and addresses of the people who really have their foot on our necks, the people who are really causing the damage. And then nonviolently, my vision, my dream is that thousands, thousands, millions of people go to those homes, go to the places where they shop, go to the places where they take their vacations, sit in the doorways, lie in front of the cars, and when they're hauled away to jail, other people take their place, surround them, put them in jail. Oh yes, I know it's an air-conditioned jail and the food's pretty good, but they're in lager, they're surrounded, like, it, like in uh, Montreal, uh, like at Genoa, they're behind the barbed wire, they're behind the concrete, we've got them in prison, we've got to understand that they're afraid of us, all right? Let's make sure that they can't enjoy their ill-gotten gain. And that, of course, was Utah Phillips imploring us to fight back against this kind of corporate malfeasance. This piece is from ITEP.org, written by Matthew Gardner. This piece is actually published back in January 31, 2020, so back at the beginning of this year, looking back at 2019. And we know that since that time, due largely to the pandemic, but due to the, the trend that was in place even before that, Amazon's profits or Amazon's income have exploded this year. Here's the piece. After two consecutive years of paying no federal income tax on billions in U.S. profits, Jeff Bezos's retail giant Amazon reported in a splashy press release this morning that the company is paying taxes. What the release oddly fails to mention is that Amazon still appears to be beating the federal income tax code like a piñata. The company's annual financial report, which was released with much less fanfare, shows that in 2019, Amazon paid just one percent of its $13 billion in U.S. profits in federal income taxes. In 2017, the company enjoyed $5.6 billion of federal income tax-free income and doubled it to $11 billion in tax-free income in 2018. Not only tax-free, but in fact, in those years, Amazon got tax massive tax refunds from the government. For 2019, Amazon paid $162 million of federal income taxes, 
a bit more than 1% of the company's domestic profits. Since the federal income tax rate is now 21%, reminder, lowered from 35%, this means that instead of avoiding 100% of its income tax liability, Amazon appears to have avoided only 94% of its tax bill last year. Possibly recognizing public ire over its tax avoidance, Amazon's blog focuses mostly on taxes that it did not pay and taxes that it collected on behalf of others. For example, the release trumpets collecting nearly $9 billion in sales taxes and use taxes last year. But note the word collected. Amazon merely collected sales taxes from customers and sent those tax payments to state and local governments. So, in other words, Amazon is, is, is claiming uh, credit for the taxes that you paid when you ordered something from Amazon that they collected and passed forward as they're required to by law to state and or local governments. While Amazon has been collecting state sales tax in every state that levies one since 2017, the company was dragged kicking and screaming into the sales tax paying community over two decades, during which it made not collecting sales taxes the main source of its competitive advantage. And the company is still doing its best to avoid collecting local sales taxes and to avoid collecting any tax on sales made through its affiliates. Amazon also wants us to know that the company paid $2.4 billion in payroll taxes and customs duties. But economists agree that payroll taxes are ultimately paid by employees in the form of reduced compensation. Like the sales tax, the payroll tax is one that the company really just collects and sends to the government as required by law. Congratulating an employer for collecting the payroll tax is like congratulating yourself for breathing. Lastly, the company claims, quote, over $1 billion of federal income tax expense. But most of that is what accountants call a deferred tax liability, meaning Amazon has not yet paid it. Amazon reports a current federal income tax of just $162 million in 2019, meaning that is what Amazon paid in 2019. The company reports that it deferred $914 million of federal taxes to future years. If we focus on the taxes the company paid in 2019, we see an effective federal income tax rate of just 1.2%. And since the company enjoyed federal income tax rebates in 2017 and 2018, this means that over the last three years, Amazon has paid zero on $29 billion of U.S. pre-tax income. While Amazon's leaders would like us to be pleased by their fiscal largesse, the clear fact remains that the federal income tax system still can hardly lay a glove on one of the biggest and most profitable corporations in the world. And that is not good news for all. Next up is another piece from the dailyposter.com. This piece is written by Christoph Rindlisbacher. Rule forces banks to boost fossil fuel development. 
As climate change intensifies, Wall Street firms are under pressure to stop investing in projects that make the crisis worse. But after Alaska Republican congressional delegation complained that banks were pulling back from the Arctic oil and gas development, a Trump-appointed financial regulator just announced a new rule designed to force banks to continue financing fossil fuel projects. The rule follows a separate move by the Trump Labor Department to try to block investors from pulling their money out of oil and gas companies. The latest rule from the Office of Comptroller of the Currency, OCC, requires large banks with more than $100 million in assets to adhere to a, quote, non-discrimination policy that bars them from attempting to disadvantage clients in specific industries. In justifying the rule, acting comptroller Brian Brooks cited, quote, family planning organizations, privately owned correctional facilities, and makers of shotguns and hunting rifles as examples of organizations that would be protected under the new rule. However, the rule appears to be designed to put pressure on five major banks who stopped lending to Arctic energy projects. In June, Senator Dan Sullivan, Senator Lisa Murkowski, and Representative Don Young wrote to Brooks, complaining that those banks had decided not to lend to projects in the 1002 area of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. The 1002 area is the site of renewed controversy as the Trump administration last week moved to auction off land to oil companies looking to drill in the Arctic. The auction is scheduled to take place in January before President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration. In July, Brooks wrote back to the Alaskan congressional delegation expressing skepticism of, quote, of claims that the sector poses a reputational risk to the banks that serve it and promising to look into the matter. Brooks's OCC then contacted several banks in order to, quote, better understand their decision-making process. According to the OCC, the responses indicated that several banks had stopped providing services to parts of the energy industry. Senate Democrats previously criticized the OCC for taking the fossil fuel industry's side, warning Brooks and other Trump administration officials to, quote, stop pressuring banks to fund new Arctic drilling projects. Nevertheless, Brooks forged ahead and ultimately introduced the new proposed OCC rule. The public comment period for the rule ends in January, giving the OCC a small window of time to potentially implement the rule before Biden's inauguration. The rule comes days after Trump nominated Brooks to a five-year term as the comptroller. His nomination faces several obstacles. The Senate is currently in recess, and the nomination comes after the Republican Senate failed to confirm Federal Reserve Board member Amy Shelton. Brooks began serving as a comptroller in May after the previous comptroller, Joseph Odding, resigned after proposing new rules that would gut the Community Reinvestment Act, an anti-redlining statute. Before serving as a comptroller of the OCC, Brooks was the former chief legal officer and vice chair of One West Bank, a predatory mortgage lender that was described as a foreclosure machine. Other One West Bank alumni in the Trump administration include Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, 
and the former comptroller Odding. After One West, Brooks worked at the cryptocurrency startup Coinbase before joining the OCC. Comptrollers typically serve for five-year terms, and the comptroller Obama-nominated Thomas Curry served during the Trump administration until his term expired in May 2017. However, the law does, does allow the president to remove the comptroller should Brooks be confirmed to the position. As comptroller, Brooks also created rules that allow payday lenders to charge predatory interest rates, sent a letter to the United States Conference of Mayors asking them to consider the economic consequences of public health lockdown measures, and issued a letter giving banks permission to offer cryptocurrency services. The OCC's new rule comes amidst a larger federal backlash against banks who are reducing their lending to fossil fuel companies. In June, Trump's Labor Department issued a rule that would make it more difficult for pension funds to divest themselves of fossil fuel holdings. That Trump rule was requested by fossil fuel interests, which said that the divestment movement was depriving oil and gas companies of capital. In February, Trump's Securities and Exchange Commission refused to expand disclosure requirements for climate-related risks. The two-pronged approach, keeping investors in the dark about climate risks and then blocking them from taking climate change into account, could create problems as climate change accelerates. The OCC's new rule comes as a welcome boost to an oil and gas industry that has been battered by the pandemic. Oil and gas companies are often poorly capitalized and have been the largest junk bond borrowers in 10 of the past 11 years. The abundance of cheap borrowing led to increased energy production in the U.S., but left companies vulnerable to economic downturns, such as in April when oil prices collapsed. There has been a surge in oil and gas bankruptcies this year. In an introduction accompanying the rule, the OCC described oil companies as, quote, politically controversial but lawful businesses and compared them to family planning organizations. The OCC also questioned whether it was appropriate for banks to evaluate climate risk, describing the matter as falling under the purview of Congress and environmental regulators. Quote, It's remarkable to see a Trump-appointed regulator cite seemingly progressive principles from anti-discrimination laws to the outsized economic power of the largest banks in service of preserving fossil fuel companies' access to the banking system, said Graham Steele, a former Senate Banking Committee chief counsel. But Steele also questioned whether the rule would be effective, describing it as having dubious legal foundation. Quote, Lenders are realizing that a lot of these projects just aren't financially viable, and no amount of government coercion is going to change that, Steele said. Next up, a piece written by Candice Mallet, published at teenvogue.com. Internet access has never been more important and unequal. Access to the internet has never been equal. That digital divide, like many inequalities in America, is fueled by capitalism. 
Through a lack of regulation, broadband communication has come under the control of a handful of monopolies. The need to address internet accessibility has become even more pressing. With millions of homes serving as both office and classroom during the coronavirus pandemic. While the Federal Communication Commission has made efforts to bridge this divide, their focus on a market solution has, in my opinion, been a hindrance to ensuring access for all. It is important that we explore other alternatives to bridging the digital divide that do not rely solely on government actions or the expectation that corporations will do what's right. The FCC, which oversees broadband and the telecommunications industry, approved a program in June that would award $16 billion to companies that meet FCC guidelines to expand broadband to rural areas. As Reuters reported, the auction will begin in October and over 10 years will pay companies monthly for providing high-speed internet and broadband to rural communities. This seems to go along with the FCC's overall approach of using its power to help the market close the digital divide. The FCC has already spent billions on similar grant programs that allocate funds to the private sector to build the necessary infrastructure needed for broadband. This form of social corporatism tends to favor corporations over people. In a 2019 Washington Post op-ed where she discussed her $85 billion broadband plan, then-presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren claimed that the FCC shoveled billions to private internet service providers, ISPs, who have provided the bare minimum in return. The FCC's current focus also seems to be mostly on rural communities that are too isolated from major providers to bother with, rather than on all people across the country who simply can't afford access to the Internet. In written testimony before Congress, G.G.B. Sohn, a distinguished fellow at Georgetown University's Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy, stated that Black and Hispanic households would be more likely to subscribe to broadband if it were more affordable. She also said that they are more likely to use free broadband services at libraries and coffee shops. With so many families out of work and struggling to pay their rent during the pandemic-induced recession, covering both internet and cell phone service is a tall order. Back in May, Teen Vogue reported on a high school senior whose family had to suspend their internet before her AP exams after her father lost his construction job. Anneli Solis, a mother of five in Los Angeles, told Reuters that she used the hotspot from her cell phone so her children could attend their online classes. Quote, We have to pay rent, bills, food. We don't make enough to pay $80 or $100 for internet, Solis said. I can use that money to pay for other things that they need. What kind of extra stress are students and workers being put through while trying to find fast, dependable internet service? While most coffee shops and libraries are still unavailable because of COVID-19 restrictions, what alternatives are there? Having a free and fair internet that respects privacy is important to having a free society. 
Imagine if instead of giving billions to corporations to expand broadband, we used that money to fund alternatives that empowered communities. One way of doing that could be by deploying mesh networks. A mesh network allows for communities to be their own internet service provider in a way that is different from the current centralized infrastructure that dominates ISPs in America. By taking this decentralized approach, it is more protected from disruption, whether by natural causes like a hurricane or government censorship. As NYC Mesh, a network in New York City, describes it, quote, Community members have wireless routers or nodes mounted on a rooftop or balcony to connect to other nodes, forming a network. Our network, in turn, connects with many other networks at an Internet Exchange Point, or IXP, providing direct access to the Internet without the intermediary of a commercial Internet service provider. By using nodes, a Wi-Fi router, for example, could be a node, and connecting them between homes, you create a system where you share access by connecting the network directly to an IXP instead of relying on an ISP to provide that access for you. People's Open Network and NYC Mesh are just some of the mesh networks that already exist in the United States. But mesh networks have been a thing all around the world for some time among rural communities, anti-capitalists working towards autonomy, and privacy rights activists. With the coronavirus pandemic, we see a real immediate need to expand access to the internet. The beauty of mesh networks is that we don't have to wait for the government to provide it for us. We can do it ourselves. It would be great if some of those billions of dollars the FCC is granting to major ISPs were going to help communities set up their own mesh network. But that isn't the case. Community self-reliance is key to surviving during turbulent times. And it is extra critical now that all people in the United States have access to broadband, it has for a long time meant the difference between uh, successfully engaging in our economy and social structures and having a bigger challenge in those engagements. And especially now with the pandemic and with so much learning going online, this is further disadvantaging groups that are disadvantaged by society and by our culture as a whole. This largely is black and indigenous and people of color because they have been economically sidelined, not been able to be as prosperous as whites in our economy. They have a disproportionate number among them that are unable to have or obtain effective internet service. This then compounds with the fact that many of their classes are going online and they need to struggle, they need to work a lot harder to obtain the same level of access to education than their wealthier peers. As part of You Can't Be Neutral's ongoing focus on the future, focusing on agendas and focusing on policy programs and just exploring other options or better ways to potentially manage within our society, 
This is another look into a people's future. So as part of a look at the people's future, we will look both at um, plans to tweak the existing system. While that is not what I think is really necessary to get the ultimate change that we need, uh, it is necessary to improve things as they are now, while also, on the other hand, striving to make major systemic change so that the things that we deal with now will be not uh, no longer enhanced by the way that the systems that we that we live within are set up. This, however, is a look at uh, tweaking the existing system now to make things better for everyone. This is the agenda to raise America's pay. This is published by EPI.org. There is now widespread agreement across the political spectrum that wage stagnation is the country's key economic challenge. Wages for the vast majority of the American workers have stagnated or declined since 1979, and wage stagnation's reach has broadened over the last dozen years to include college-educated workers. This is not a crisis of overall income growth. Over the same period that most workers' wages have stagnated, Economy-wide productivity has risen by 64%. In short, the potential has existed for adequate widespread wage growth over the last three and a half decades, but these economic gains have not trickled down to the vast majority. As EPI's Raising America's Pay initiative shows, wage stagnation is not inevitable. It is a direct result of public policy choices on behalf of those with the most power and wealth that have intentionally suppressed wage growth. Because wage suppression stems from intentional policy choices, it can be reversed by making different policy choices. To boost Americans' wages, policymakers must intentionally tilt bargaining power back towards low and moderate wage workers. The following policies will generate robust wage growth and ensure that America's prosperity is broadly shared. 1. Raise the minimum wage. In 2015, the inflation-adjusted minimum wage is about 25% below what it was in 1968, even though productivity has doubled and the education and skills of those in the bottom fifth have greatly improved. Moving the minimum wage to $12 by 2020 would benefit about a third of the workforce directly and indirectly. And of course, that number is too low. That number should be $15 now. And technically, it should have been $15 back in about 2015. It should be closer to $20 now. If wage growth had kept pace with productivity growth 
minimum wage right now would be in the, the $22 to $25 range. Update overtime rules. The share of salaried workers eligible for overtime has fallen from 65% in 1975 to just 11 percent in 2016. This is largely because only those earning less than a particular threshold are covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act regardless of their workplace duties. If the threshold was restored to the value it held in 1975, roughly $51,000, we would provide overtime protections to 6.1 million more workers. This would provide them with higher pay and or more leisure time, while providing incentives for companies to hire more workers. Number three, strengthen collective bargaining rights. The single largest factor suppressing the wage of growth for middle-wage workers over the last few decades has been the erosion of collective bargaining, which has affected both union and non-union workers alike making it easier for willing workers to form unions, increasing penalties for corporate violators of labor laws, and halting and reversing the spread of so-called right-to-work laws will help give workers the leverage they need to bargain for better wages and benefits and set high labor standards for all workers. Regularize Undocumented Workers Undocumented workers are vulnerable to exploitation by unscrupulous employers. Consequently, they earn lower wages than workers who have greater access to legal protections and are able to switch jobs more readily. Regularizing undocumented workers will not only lift their wages, but will also lift wages of U.S. workers in the same fields of work. Provide earned sick leave and paid family leave. The United States has failed to adopt new labor standards that respond to emerging needs. In particular, we need updated standards to assist workers and their families in achieving a better balance between work and family. Providing earned sick leave and paid family leave would help raise workers' pay and would give them more economic security. The fact that we don't have paid sick leave as a national policy in the age of a COVID pandemic is criminal. And discriminatory practices that contribute to race and gender inequalities. Generating broader-based wage growth must also include an efforts to close race and gender inequities that have been ever-present in our labor market. We need consistently strong enforcement of anti-discrimination laws in the hiring, promotion, and pay of women and minority workers. This includes greater transparency in the ways these decisions are made and ensuring that the processes available for workers to pursue any violation of their rights are effective. Support strong enforcement of labor standards. The enforcement of labor standards in the United States is so weak that hundreds of thousands of employers routinely fail to pay minimum wage or overtime, fail to protect employees from workplace hazards, fail to pay payroll taxes or workers' compensation premiums, or fail to provide family and medical leave. Wage theft alone costs employees tens of billions of dollars a year, and lack of workers' compensation coverage, unemployment insurance coverage, or Social Security coverage can cost them billions more. More enforcement and tougher penalties are needed to deter these violations, and to access to the courts must be available to injured workers. 
employers' growing use of forced arbitration, where employees as a condition of employment give up their right to sue in the public courts and are shunted into secret private proceedings that can both be more costly and provide poorer remedies must be stopped and reversed. As government enforcement resources decline, it is vital that workers have effective remedies in state and federal courts for labor standards violations. Enact targeted employment programs and undertake public investments in infrastructure to create jobs. To obtain full employment for all, we need policies that can direct jobs to particular areas that suffer from high unemployment, even when the national labor market is largely healthy. These policies can include public and nonprofit employment programs that create jobs by meeting unmet needs. Additionally, undertaking a sustained program of public investment can create jobs, raise our productivity, and spur economic growth. Reduce our trade deficit by stopping destructive currency manipulation. Many of our major trading partners engage in intentional currency manipulation, buying up dollar-denominated assets on global financial markets simply to depress the value of their own currency. This depressed currency value makes imports cheaper in the U.S. market and U.S. exports more expensive. This results in a larger trade deficit and slower job growth. Eliminating currency manipulation could reduce the U.S. global trade deficit by between $200 billion and $500 billion each year, which could increase overall U.S. GDP by between $288 billion and $720 billion and create between $2.3 million and $5.8 million U.S. jobs. Congress and the President should reject any trade treaties that do not have enforceable provisions to combat currency manipulation. Use the tax code to restrain the top 1% incomes. Tax preferences for executive pay can be eliminated or their use tied to the executive's firm giving wage increases equal to productivity growth. Others have recommended tying corporate tax rates to the ratio of executive pay to median worker pay, as well as changes to corporate governance procedures. Additionally, imposing a financial transactions tax can steer investments towards productive uses and away from speculation and restrain unproductive financial activity and pay. Finally, higher top marginal tax rates can reduce the incentive for financial sector professionals and corporate managers to rig markets or suppress wage growth to make more income flow their way. So those are a few ways that we can raise America's pay as published at the Economic Policy Institute. I think those are very mild reforms overall. Uh, beneficial, absolutely beneficial to individuals in the short term under our existing systems, but not nearly the kind of uh, robust change we need to our systems so that they don't, um, so we don't have to uh, contort ourselves to make these systems work for everyone, but that they naturally work for everyone. And that'll bring us to our final piece. When we talk about policies, we sometimes are treated as if we are on the fringes because some people are opposed to those policies, think they won't personally benefit from those policies, 
and therefore try to marginalize those of us who want a better world, a more equitable world, and a better life for everyone in it. This piece is by Caitlin Johnstone. You can find it at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. It should not be considered radical or extremist to oppose mass murder for profit and power. It should not be considered radical or extremist to oppose the globe-spanning power alliance that is perpetrating most of that mass murder on the world stage today. It should not be considered radical or extremist to oppose the existence of secretive government agencies which have extensive histories of committing horrific crimes. It should not be considered radical or extremist to say that everyone ought to have a basic standard of living instead of being deprived of food, shelter, and medicine if they have the wrong imaginary numbers in their bank account. It should not be considered radical or extremist to oppose the existence of a small class of elites who use their vast fortunes to manipulate our entire society toward their advantage. Should not be considered radical or extremist to want plutocrats and government agencies to stop deliberately manipulating people's minds using mass media propaganda. It should not be considered radical or extremist to want everyone to have an equal chance of getting their voice heard in our information ecosystem instead of a few select power servicing lackeys. It should not be considered radical or extremist to want a society that is ruled by the many for the benefit of the many, instead of one that is run by the few for the benefit of the few. It is very normal, sane, and healthy to want a world where everyone has what they need to live, where everyone is free to do, say, and think whatever they like as long as it isn't hurting anyone else and where nobody is being murdered by powerful governments. This is a very basic, intuitive, common-sense desire to have for yourself and for your fellow human beings. It's wanting for your society what you want for yourself. Yet people who promote policies which are aimed at creating this kind of world are consistently marginalized and dismissed as radicals and extremists. It's okay to say you oppose war in principle, but if you oppose any specific acts of warmongering being perpetrated by your government, you'll get labeled a Russian asset, a dictator apologist, and all sorts of other pejorative labels which exist solely to justify keeping you off of mainstream platforms. It's okay to think we should live in peaceful collaboration with each other and our ecosystem, but if you promote specific policies to make that happen, you're an evil commie, a class warrior, and a moon bat in the same way. Simply advocating sanity over insanity gets you shoved out of sight and out of mind by the narrative managers responsible for preserving a world order that is stark raving insane from top to bottom. If you oppose the systems exploited by the ruling power establishment, which murders, exploits, and oppresses people at home and abroad, 
all day, every day, while destroying the very ecosystem we depend on for survival, then you are branded a lunatic and you're wrong think, quarantined, so as not to infect the mainstream herd. This dynamic is made possible by the fact that the powerful are constantly pouring their wealth and influence into manufacturing the collective delusion that madness is sanity and sickness is health. The plutocrat-controlled political class and the plutocrat-owned media class feed the public an unceasing stream of propaganda aimed at convincing them that capitalism is totally working, that Western imperialism is a kooky conspiracy theory, and that the military, police, and politicians are our friends. This is what's constantly being done by mainstream news media, and with varying degrees of subtlety, it's what's being done by every show on television and every movie churned out by Hollywood as well. But that is all it is. A collective propaganda-induced delusion. In reality, it is the mainstream promoters of the establishment-authorized status quo who are the violent extremists, and it is those who desire health and sanity who are the moderates. The madness of our world will necessarily continue for as long as we are unable to collectively find our way out of it, and we'll be unable to collectively find our way out of it for as long as they are able to keep us collectively confused about what is madness and what is sanity, about what is normal and what is abnormal, about what is moderate and what is extreme. If you oppose the madness of our world, don't make an identity out of being a radical. Don't build an egoic structure around life on the fringe. You are not radical, and your ideas should not be fringe. To live a revolutionary life, you should insist on the normality and mundaneness of your own position. Sanity should not be special and unusual, and we should not participate in the delusion that it is. Let your life be an expression of the common sense ordinariness of revolution. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out more. You can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. It's interesting. You would think from reading the little, well, uh, sorry, we can't afford this. Sorry, we can afford child care. We can't afford to give school lunches to kids. We can't afford to give $500 a month to a mother taking care of two kids. We, we don't have the money for the arts. We have to cut money for music. We just don't have it. This country with this enormous gross national product, truly gross national <laughs> product, you see. Uh, Wealth, uh, which is concentrated in a, in a small portion of the population, which is wasted on the military budget, 
which goes for all sorts of purposes other than human purposes. And we, we, there's a basis there in those facts and, and the existence, I believe, in most American people, not all American people, but most large numbers of American people of the, the uh, sense of what is just and what is right. And I believe that's the, that's the basis for people beginning to move, people beginning to act, people to get together with other people, not to allow those people who are, who are trying to convince us that they have it all their way. Uh, why? Because they were elected by some small part of the population who voted unenthusiastically for them because they had nobody else to vote for? Uh, uh, people begin to act, people begin to move, people begin to organize in the smallest of ways with the smallest of groups. Well, that's how social movements develop. That's how social movements have developed historically. Uh, and if everybody understands that the smallest action, oh, it may not have any effect, but it might join to millions of other small actions and at a certain point in history might bring about the kind of changes we want, uh, might actually uh, change policy, might actually boldly change policy uh, and do something about the the horrors of, of racism and, and uh, the, in, the unequal treatment of sexes and the unequal treatment of, of uh, uh, gay people and the unequal treatment of children. Uh, do something about all those things. Because we certainly, we're approaching a new century. We, we don't want to go into this new century repeating the history of the old century. And I, th I think it's possible not to repeat that and to do something new and startling. And not only that, what, whatever you accomplish, whatever is accomplished, and you never know what you will accomplish, and anybody would be rash, and I would be rash to predict, oh yes, it's certain, great things will happen. Uh, except that I know that if you don't do anything, I know great things won't happen. Uh, if you act, great things might happen. But whether they do or not, in the process, in the course of it, by your action, by not simply living the life of a professional, but having another life, uh, well, it will be more interesting and more fun and more rewarding. And as I say, whatever is accomplished, you will feel that you have participated in something worthwhile uh, all the time. Uh, that's worth doing. Th thank you for coming. <laughs> <laughs>